Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 359 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, it is Wednesday and you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down the latest and greatest across NXT and AEW this week, NXT building on its way to NXT Halloween Havoc this coming Saturday, while AEW Dynamite was on a different night due to the MLB playoffs. AEW absolutely loaded up the show with championship matches, while NXT put a ton of main roster talent on its go-home show, both to combat AEW, but perhaps even more so, the MLB and NBA opening night, which I forgot to mention was also competition for AEW. The point is, there was a lot of stuff on television this past Tuesday, AEW on a different night, and we had to do both shows at once. So the Silver King said, hey, you know what? Why am I going to wait 24 more hours just to do this show in its normal Thursday time slot? nuh We're going to do it one day earlier on Wednesday. A couple of references there to start the show, a little Carmelo Hayes and uh, L.A. Knight. But we are going to get into everything across NXT and AEW coming up momentarily. It would not be, though, in addition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, if I did not open the show by reminding you that this podcast is So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a couple moments out of your life. Leave a written review for your friends here at Getting Over. Tell people why you listen to the show and why they should subscribe. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. I did forget to mention this earlier in the week, but because it is the week of NXT Halloween Havoc, on Saturday we will indeed have a pre-show for Halloween Havoc on Twitter Spaces. So you're going to need to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast to join in that pre-show. You get to interact with us, uh, discuss the matches, comments, questions, whatever the hell you want. We will get it done live as we always do before Halloween Havoc on Saturday. But on Twitter, we also release uh, every you know new podcast episode. First release goes on there. We let you know when it's live. We tweet about the shows while they're on television, uh, mostly AEW, Dynamite, NXT, Raw, and SmackDown. We do skip Rampage uh, Friday night, 10 p.m. I'm not going to be spending my time on Twitter uh, live tweeting a show, but uh, we do do that as frequently as we possibly can. And of course, we also talk about wrestling all week long on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So do not forget to follow us there. Now, this week, of course, this episode, we are talking NXT and AEW. And the good news is both of them put on great shows this week. Now, obviously, there was an unfortunate ending to AEW Dynamite with Hangman Adam Page suffering a concussion. And that, of course, is not only unfortunate, but we here wish him the best and a speedy recovery. In terms of the show before that, you know, right before that happened, it was very good. Was it as strong as last week? I'm going to go ahead and say no. It was a lot of title matches for the sake of title matches. But that said, it was an entertaining hour and 55 minutes of television, obviously, until what happened at the end. NXT, pretty much the same thing, except for the you know part where the end of it you know was, was depressing. Uh, it was one of the best go-home shows to a special event that NXT has put on probably in the last two years. Now, some of that was because there was WWE main roster talent from Raw and SmackDown infused within the show. But I need to say, in almost every instance, it wasn't just throwing names on there to throw names on there. Only half of them were really announced ahead of time. 
The other half were surprises on the show. And it just felt like as a viewer, they were paying it off for you giving them your eyeballs and giving them your attention. Not just in terms of the Halloween Havoc build for which they did a really good job, but also the infusion of that main roster talent, knowing that they're in competition with baseball, basketball, and AEW on the same time and night for you know the first time in a long time. And it just felt like they really wanted you to say, hey, you know what? I didn't waste my time watching NXT. That was a really fun, enjoyable experience. And I'm going to come back and watch it again. And that's exactly what they should have done. So really, that's the point that I'm trying to make here in the cold open to the show, which is AEW and NXT both did exactly what they needed to do on this particular night, on Tuesday night. AEW put their best foot forward in terms of in-ring, and NXT put their best foot forward in terms of storytelling, build to a special premium live event, and of course, infusing some main roster talent there as well. So we have plenty to get to across both brands. Given this is an ultimate preview episode for NXT Halloween Havoc, we always do the ultimate previews at the end of the episode, which means we will start with AEW today. As always though, uh, no matter when you're listening to the show, perhaps you only watch NXT, so you only wanna hear us review that, or AEW, same thing, or you're here just you know, Friday or Saturday, right before Halloween Havoc, and you just want to hear that ultimate preview, well, don't fret. In our episode descriptions, we have full breakdowns of the episode along with timestamps, so you're able to jump around whenever you need to get there. But as I always say, I hope you're here listening to the entire show. So let's kick it off, as I said, with AEW. On Rampage, John Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli fought Butcher and Blade. Hangman Page watched from backstage. Claudio saved Mox from a double-team move by intercepting it. The faces then hit Death Rider and the Rocola Bomb simultaneously for the win. The fans were really hot for the match. After the bell, Mox did like a call-and-response promo with Claudio, saying Hangman would get stepped on. I don't even really have much of a take on this. It was a fun match, but it didn't really accomplish anything. It was just like getting big names on Rampage. On Dynamite, there was a video package ahead of the match with highlights and clips of them being interviewed. Nothing was really said other than Mox refused to drop the title in his hometown. He said he would do whatever it took to ensure he left as champion. So before we got to the championship match on Dynamite, there was a really interesting segment with William Regal and MJF. So Regal was in the ring for an interview. You knew it was going to get cut off. And before he was even asked a question, MJF interrupted. MJF talked about getting extra work in WWE at age 19, where Regal assigned them tryout matches with Arn Anderson, Dean Blanco, and Adam Pearce watching. MJF said Regal pulled him from the group after his match, told him to sell himself to him one-on-one, and then MJF said Regal promised to get him a job after that. But when he learned that he was only 19, Regal said he was too young. Fans briefly chanted, you fucked up. MJF said Regal put him among Claudio Castagnoli, Brian Danielson, and John Moxley, and promised to vouch for him when he matured and became of age, ready to work for WWE. Regal apparently told him to send in a match and promo to him every single month, and he would review them. But the third month that MJF did that, Regal apparently shut him down, saying if MJF wanted to become a star, and eventually did become a star, he would notice him. Uh, MJF said the email that he got from Regal made him want, want to quit wrestling and made him want to kill himself. But now the tables have turned because Regal is sad and old and snuck into his company after being fired by WWE. MJF went back to the bidding war stuff of 2024, and then he did his closing line, throwing the mic, and he got a really big pop from the crowd after that. So Regal grabbed the mic, and he got booed initially. He talked about leaving home at 16 and joining a carnival and getting his ass kicked every single day just to be able to break into the industry. He said he didn't cast MJF aside. He wanted to light a fire under his ass. 
And MJF was lucky because an email that's bothered him for seven years is a lot easier than the way Regal had it, getting the shit kicked out of him in carnivals and stuff. Regal said making a lot of money doesn't make you great and that MJF let him down because he's always taking shortcuts and cheating. Regal then turned his back to say, hey man, hit me, stay on your cheating path, hit me from behind, knock me out. MJF put on his diamond ring, but he hesitated. Regal turned around, he said he had a lot to prove and he walked out. This was tremendous from start to finish. Let's get that clear. I do find it a bit hard to believe, or at least I'm starting to find it a bit hard to believe that MJF has these deep, meaningful interactions that have shaped his persona and his career with literally every single person older than him who he's feuded against in AEW, like Cody, CM Punk, um, John Moxley, now William Regal, they're injecting this into it. It just feels like some of it has to not be true. Otherwise, this kid was... He had his head in every single breadbasket that he possibly could trying to get advice and everyone just, everyone shut him down. No one supported him. I just find that kind of difficult to to believe really. But whether the email was real or not, the promo was exceptional and Regal being able to come back at him to such a degree, it really sold the entire thing. This was just a masterclass in promos, both individually and together. We talked last week about how it's clear that there's at least a tweener turn, if not a full, pure babyface turn coming from MJF. And this was just another example of that. Now, whether that's going to happen before he wins the title, as he wins it in the double turn, or perhaps even afterward, it's quite obvious that it's coming at this point. At least it seems to be obvious. And it's probably the right move, given the crowd reaction, where MJF in Cincinnati, where he should be getting booed, you know, you would think, especially across from John Moxley, is getting cheered for cutting a promo at William Regal, who's universally loved. And then when Regal picks up the mic, he's getting booed initially. So, you know, look, a lot of this sure is weighing into MJF as an AEW guy and Regal came from WWE. And the crowd, if you mention WWE, automatically it's bad. If WWE didn't like you at any part in your career, then they're the bad guys and you're the good guy automatically. So sure, a lot of it played into that, but they're utilizing that for what seems to be a face turn. Now we're going to get back to MJF momentarily. Let's move on to the main event of Dynamite, which was the AEW championship. John Moxley defending against Hangman Page. Hangman attacked Mox in the crowd during his entrance. He did a moonsault off a platform. Mox bladed almost immediately. He put Page in the figure four, gave him the finger. Hangman did a fallaway slam. Mox caught him with a cutter on the kip up. MJF was shown in the suite with a chip during Mox's entrance, but about 10 minutes into the match, he was gone. Hangman hit Deadeye on the apron. Mox's blade job opened up big time. Hangman did the avalanche follow-away slam. Hangman then flipped out of a German suplex and they exchanged lariats. And when Hangman took Mox's lariat, he just, like he did the spinning type of thing that they do sometimes, but then he face-planted right on the canvas. The referee and Doc Sampson immediately checked him out. And after about a minute, the match was ended via medical stoppage with nine minutes left in the show. AEW immediately cut to reaction shots of Mox. Then they went to the commentary table. Taz was visibly upset. He even lifted up his glasses, talking about how uh, during his career, he actually got injured in the ring himself. Obviously, he broke his neck, I think is is what happened if memory serves. Um, So he was visibly upset and shaken by the entire thing. Uh, The fans chanted cowboy shit in support of Hangman Page. The camera then went back to Mox with six minutes left in the show. He gave well wishes to Hangman. He talked about how being successful in wrestling requires putting everything on the line every single night. And Mox said he usually doesn't pay MJF any mind, but since he talked so much shit to Regal earlier in the show, that he should come out and confront him. So MJF stormed out 
with the casino chip in one hand. He was grabbing a referee by the collar, dragging him down to the ring in his other hand. The bottom rope was already loose because they had to take M- uh, Hangman Page out on a gurney. They took him out on a stretcher, obviously, just in case it was a neck injury or spinal or something like that. Uh, MJF was still wearing his dress clothes. He removed his shirt and then he rolled out of the ring. He handed the chip to Regal, ran up to commentary to grab a mic, and he promised he wouldn't take any shortcuts and would only use the chip on Mox when he was 110% because he wanted to leave no doubt that MJF is the best. MJF then officially made his title challenge for full gear with Mox saying some words back, basically putting himself over as dangerous. Now, let's talk about all this. First, the match, it was really rolling along until Hangman's injury. It was probably on its way to like an A grade of some kind, right? Uh, But it, it was tough to tell on replay. It just seemed like Hangman got knocked out the second Mox connected with that lariat. That lariat hit him in the side of the head and it was snug. And I'm not saying that Mox did anything wrong. This is just one of those freak accidents, it seems like. But it just seems like he got hit by that. You know, the lariat ideally is supposed to go like collarbone, upper chest type of area. And for whatever reason, it hit him in the face. It just seems like it knocked him out cold. Uh, and he, the way he landed on the canvas, he, I think he was concussed before he hit the canvas. But certainly by the time he did, he didn't even protect his face. You could see he just landed on the side of his face, his nose, his mouth, stuff like that. His neck didn't seem to snap back. So it didn't seem like whiplash or anything like that. And ultimately, by the time uh, you know, everything closed down, on Tuesday night, he had gone to the hospital in Cincinnati and had been diagnosed with a concussion and apparently nothing else, which is obviously really good news. It's a concussion on its own is not good news, but the fact that there was nothing neck injury related or spinal related, that's a, a positive development given the fact that it was almost certain that he had a concussion, you know, no matter what. So again, it's one of those unfortunate moments, really good by AEW stopping the match. Not that it's a positive for anyone to get hurt, if you want to come up with the silver lining for the entire thing, you can point out that there wasn't a definitive winner in the match. So theoretically, they could run this back in the future. The next time one of them, whether it's Paige or Moxley, wins a championship, you could see them doing this match again and kind of calling back to this and the fact that it was never decided. Mox could talk about the fact that he knocked him out, you know, if he's a heel at the time. So there is a way to kind of come back to this from a kayfabe wrestling standpoint. But what's clearly the most important is Hangman's health. And you know, the, the hope is that he's back as fast as possible, but as safe as possible. And they don't rush him back. Clearly, there's people in AEW right now, uh, Adam Cole in particular, dealing with post-concussion issues. And there's a reason why Cole has not, not been back for months upon months after it kind of seemed like he was on his way back. So, you know, AEW, it seems, does a really good job uh, ensuring that their concussion protocol is followed and people do not come back to the ring until they are cleared. So I do have a lot of confidence that that will be the case with Hangman. But really, the key is just, Best wishes from everyone here at the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. I'm sure he's not going to hear this, uh, but we all certainly do send our wishes, you know, to him uh, because, look, he's a great talent. He seems to be an absolute fantastic person and father, and that is by far more important than, of course, being in the ring wrestling. So best wishes to Hangman. Now, uh, getting back to the post-match of this, it did feel like the post-match with MJF was planned. I don't think it was improvised or conceptualized in the moment. I saw some people saying that. I don't know how you could think that. Do, do I think that they vamped and wasted three or four minutes at the end of the show between the shots of commentary, Mox cutting a promo, that type of stuff? Do I think they wasted a few minutes to then get into the planned content that they had, the planned final segment? I do. There was so much time left and it was clear the match was going to its finish. So it was, we probably had two or three minutes of wrestling left 
before we were going to get the post-match stuff. But there is no way that the storyline or what they did was improvised because the entire thing was set up by the Regal uh, segment earlier in the show. So the whole point was for them to do this. Now, the tease of the immediate cash in with the chip, that was strong in the moment. It seemed like it was at least feasible. But the problem was that the guy was wearing dress clothes. And even MJF enraged, psychotic, not really thinking, he's smart enough to not get involved in a match with John Moxley wearing dress pants. So on one hand, I really wish they had had him come out in gear. That would have made a lot more sense than him coming out fully dressed like that. But he also set it up in kayfabe now, and I hate this, but it's now kayfabe in AEW that the chip can be used in a Money in the Bank briefcase type way. Uh, You can just bring a referee down to the ring with you and the chip. You can cash it in and you can get a match whenever you want. And as I've said for multiple weeks, my hope was that would not be the case, but clearly it's what they're doing. Now, MJF ultimately being coaxed by Regal into using the chip in advance for full gear to do things the right way, that's a good move because it allows you to build to a big time pay-per-view main event. And really what you don't want to do is have Mox fight someone else, beat them, MJF come down, cash it in, and then his entire title reign is questioned. Because he won it in a way where, yes, kind of like Regal said, it's a shortcut. You want MJF, ultimately, when he wins the title the first time, to win it on his own. Even if he cheats a little bit, that's kind of perhaps okay, because he is a cheating piece of shit. Like, his entire career in AEW, he's cheated over and over again. That's what Regal pointed out with the Dynamite Diamond Ring, with other stuff. So it's okay, theoretically, if that's what he does, if he grabs tights, one of those things. But you don't want it to be cheap in terms of a Money in the Bank style cash-in. Because then the whole reign is kind of just, oh, well, if you actually fought someone real or if you fought Mox one-on-one in a real way, Mox would beat you. And then eventually Mox fights him and wins the title back. And you're like, well, what was that? So I like the way that they're doing this. Uh, The match was hot. The post-match was hot as well. Really good stuff all around with the exception of Hangman. Uh, The other topic that we can talk about kind of coming out of this is Regal's role in the entire thing. Certainly there is a red herring, at least scenario here, where Regal now has the chip because MJF gave it to him and Regal's the one who stood up and talked to MJF and kind of put him in his place and kind of changed his mind a little bit about the way he was going to go about things. So there's the chance of a turn where, you know, during the match, Regal's there ringside with Mox and he turns and helps MJF and sides with him. And the whole thing's just a, you know, they they threw a shroud over the entire thing. Hey, Mox, you know, yeah, we told you we weren't going to cheat. Well, we always cheat. Don't you know me? Haven't you followed my career? If you really cared about the Blackpool Combat Club, you would know exactly what William Regal is all about. So there's the potential for that. I think it's a red herring. I don't think they're going to go in that direction, but it's certainly out there and they definitely want people to be talking about it, which really is what you need from a well-done storyline. So, you know, there's criticisms that we've levied, you know, in the recent past about cutting to MJF a thousand times during the Grand Slam match or doing it, I think, again last week where they cut to him a bunch uh, while Mox was in the middle of doing something, a promo, or I really forgot what the situation was. But this is a situation in particular where I just think they're handling it exceptionally well. So I'm excited for the storyline. I'm excited now for the match that's booked. And that's what you want. This is the big match. It's the big storyline in AEW, and they are knocking it out of the park. Maybe don't want to say or can't say, I should say, Uh, The same thing for a lot of other storylines going on in AEW, but for the one that matters, they're absolutely crushing it to this point. So let's keep going and talk about the rest of Dynamite and Rampage. So on Rampage, we have the Jericho Appreciation Society in the ring with Anna JAS giving Daniel Garcia a big introduction. Fans chanted his name. Garcia's explanation for basically not turning 
on JAS was that he was being rebellious for a little bit, but Chris Jericho taught him how to win and taught him that sports entertainers are better. Jericho did his ROH spiel until Dalton Castle interrupted. Fans chanted his name. He said Jericho having the title makes him sick because he broke for his back for it, which by the way is true. He actually did break his back for it. Uh, and that he wanted a title shot, Jericho accepted. And the concept of this, of Jericho going through all the old ROH champions, it's a strong one. It's also a way to have a lot of title matches without really worrying about storylines. All you really need to do is a confrontation segment like this. And then on the next show, you can have a title match, right? And you know you could make an argument, perhaps that's lazy, but given the context of the storyline, I don't think it is. I actually think it's, Pretty well done and pretty smart to do it this way. There's also a report out there. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, it's not a report. Tony Khan blatantly said while trying to promote uh, this dynamite that it seems like something is coming down the pike in terms of a show for ROH. Now, I don't think that would be a television show. I'm really leaning towards a streaming deal, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, something like that seems like it would be a better fit for an ROH show. But clearly, they are adding talent. We're going to talk about more people that AEW signed for ROH. Uh, in you know later in the show, they're clearly loading up that roster, um, and it seems like an ROH is going to get off the ground in terms of whether we'll cover that here. <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. It's tough to get through Rampage. I can't imagine what an ROH show would look like, but uh, we'll, I digress. We'll get back to that a little bit later. So on Dynamite, we had the ROH title match, Chris Jericho defending against Dalton Castle. Dalton's entrance was pretty sweet. I gotta say his theme kind of sounds like an instrumental ripoff of Queen's Radio Gaga, which by the way is a great song. So I really didn't hate it. I thought it was kind of cool that they ripped that off. Uh, Jericho tried to do the Code of Honor. Castle reached in his pants and flipped him the bird. Castle threw the boys out of the ring like lawn darts into Jake Hager. Castle caught Jericho trying line salt, countering into a German suplex. Castle then caught Jericho's Codebreaker, countering into some like spinning finisher move that he does for a false finish. The Judas Effect came really suddenly after that, about like 30 seconds later, and Jericho retained the title. Commentary pointed out that Jericho did not cheat to win, which I thought was interesting. JAS celebrated with him on the ramp, with Jericho saying he was desecrating everything ROH, including former champions, ring announcers, and commentators. He went to attack Ian with the title uh, when Jerry Lynn stopped him, so Jericho took him out with a tombstone pile driver into the title. Good stuff from top to bottom here. Not to really play into the gimmick too much, but this is a good example of like, sports entertainment compared to pro wrestling to some degree. It was really entertaining, even if I didn't necessarily love it. Credit to Jericho for finally delivering a good Judas effect. It's like maybe his second good Judas effect of all time. The post-match was a bunch of whatever for me. Didn't like, he just tombstoned Jerry Lynn on a title and the crowd did not react to it. So clearly didn't really mean anything to anyone else. Didn't really mean anything to me. Although, I, I mean, I know Jerry Lynn and I've liked him throughout his career. It just kind of seemed like unnecessary is probably the best way to put it. On Dynamite, Renee interviewed Brian Danielson and Wheeler Yuta. Brian said losing isn't easy, especially an ROH title match, given how meaningful it is to him. He was asked about Daniel Garcia. He praised him as potentially being the best ever. Yuta sat there stewing really angry that he said that. He asked how the hell Brian could be surprised by what Garcia did when it was obvious to everyone else that he would turn on him. He said he's glad to be with Mox and Claudio, but meeting his hero in Danielson was disappointing. Presumably, this is going to result in probably like a friendly between the two with Brian winning and earning Wheeler's respect again or something like that. It's definitely the best acting and promo work that we've seen from Yuta thus far. So big credit to him for that. In terms of the storyline, I mean, again, we're going to have to find out if Regal does do something with MJF. Um, you know, maybe there's a heel turn for the BCC coming out or for Regal and anyone who wants to associate with him. That's certainly a possibility. So, you know, again, we're just going to have to see 
uh, where this goes. One thing I will say, just um, I want to go back briefly to MJF because I'm remembering it now and I, I didn't mention it earlier. You know, MJF over the last like two or three weeks has been on this like lone wolf type of thing, right? Where he's like, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm Now he's going to do it the right way. Um, he considered shaking someone's hand. I'm forgetting who it was. I know Jay Lethal was the other person whose hand he almost shook. Oh, Wheeler Yuta. It was Wheeler Yuta. He almost shook Wheeler Yuta's hand after the match, but he ultimately didn't and so on and so forth. And I'm just keep thinking back to the way he returned with the firm, you know, stealing the chip for him and him making and him saying how and Stokely Hathaway, I'm sorry, saying how the firm is there for MJF and they're going to he's on they're on call for him whenever they, he needs them and blah, blah, blah. And now that's just over like Stokely and the firm and MJF not part of the same storyline, MJF completely by himself again. And it really brings me back to what all of those comments we made coming out of that show, which I think was all out, where we're just like, you know, MJF winning the chip was inspired. That's a really good idea. But doing it the way they did it was extremely rough. The follow-up on Dynamite with them trying to explain it in the ring was extremely rough. And now they've just completely moved on for it, where it's like, why did you even do that in the first place? And why is the firm now a thing? if it has no relation to MJF and does that thing even have a future on its own? Especially when you're seeing like Stokely Hathaway along with Ethan Page a good amount, but not really anyone else. So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, I, I just realized it while, while I was talking about Yuta that I never got to it earlier. Uh, on Rampage, Tony Storm said in the taped promo that she would defend the title against Hikaru Shida, her best friend. Shida said she carried AEW through the pandemic and Storm promised to retain the title. This booking just made no sense. Um, they teamed last week. Sheeta had just returned. So why is she getting a title match? Like it, it was purely a ratings ploy given Dynamite was on Tuesday night against NXT baseball and basketball. So, I mean, annoying, but like, don't try to tell me that that storyline makes sense. Also on Dynamite, uh, we had Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter backstage. They guaranteed that by the end of 2022, one of them would be women's world champion. Typical 30 second promo didn't really accomplish anything given we already knew that was their goal. So we had the interim women's Championship match, Storm against Sheeta. Sheeta hit a Meteora out of the corner and a gut wrench front slam. Storm came back with a release German suplex and a hip attack. They botched this like vertical suplex counter. After a couple more counters, Storm hit her Tornado DDT and Storm Zero for the win in nine minutes. It was a relatively easy win for Tony Storm when Hikaru Sheeta is one of the top women's wrestlers in the entire company. Nine minutes that quickly with just being able to hit a Tornado DDT and Storm Zero like out of nowhere. It was just kind of weird. Immediately after the bell, Hater and Rebel attacked Storm. Baker came out in a Steelers jersey. Soraya followed and beat on Baker into the crowd, ignoring that Storm was still getting her ass kicked inside the ring. Then Rio came down, making her return, and somehow took out the heels two-on-one with a big splash from the top rope. This was, again, the normal allotment of time for a women's segment, except it was in the first hour instead of the second because of the way they were built the show. As always, when AEW puts good women's wrestlers together, they put on good women's wrestling matches. And that was certainly the case here. Great work between these two. Obviously the right winner, given Sheeta didn't even have any business getting a title match in the first place. Soraya Baker, it seems like it's a no doubt for full gear at this point. I presume Hater is the potential heel champion that was teased in the promo segment. Obviously we're gonna have to see how that transpires if AEW ultimately straps the rocket to her like the fans clearly want them to. One more note, uh, the post-match save was probably the coolest that Rio has ever looked in an AEW ring. She just kind of looked like a badass here. But to say this women's stuff was uninspired, I mean, it's an understatement. It's just the continuation of what they've been doing. 
singular storyline when it comes to this. There is another one that's mostly a rampage storyline. We'll talk about it in a moment, but no extra time on the show. It was almost like an afterthought of, hey, what really good women's match can we put on the show where we're putting a lot of good matches on the show, but the other ones have storylines. Like it's, it's just kind of disappointing, I guess is the best way to put it. On Dynamite, we had a trios title match, Death Triangle against Best Friends. It was fun to see Orange Cassidy walk out with the All-Atlantic title in a backpack because he's too lazy to actually physically carry it. Really smart use of the gimmick. You know, just continuation, really, of the gimmick is the best way to put it. Obviously, um, the work both ways here was super exciting with all six guys. Pac tried to use the bell hammer. Ray Phoenix took it away from him, and Pac seemed to, like, curse at him that he did it. Uh, Best friends countered Pentagon step-up Canadian Destroyer into Strong Zero, but Phoenix broke the fall and hit a double rolling cutter. Phoenix then hit a sit-out Tombstone Piledriver on Trent Beretta for the clean 1-2-3. Pac got into it with Phoenix a bit after the bell, but ultimately they shook hands and hugged. Well, it was sure as hell nice to see the Lucha Bros not only win a match, but do it squeaky clean for a change. That was great. Aside from the normal lack of tagging, the work rate here was awesome. Great show opener. The right people won. The finish was kind of sudden. I, I was surprised they did it that way. It almost felt like it was going long and they long and they were told to go home. So that's why they just kind of rushed it. But it was good wrestling. And you know, now hopefully this feud is over. I don't really want to see these teams fight anymore. Trio's title, uh, the singles title. I'm just, I'm done with it. It's been enough already. Uh, on Rampage, Swerve and our glory were interviewed by Renee. Swerve laughed about the acclaimed losing the scissoring trademark. Keith Lee said he stuck with Swerve because he believes he can be great and said they didn't need to cheat to win. Keith said Strickland was swerving the wrong way. This is obviously the storyline that's been building, you know, them eventually splitting up and fighting each other with Keith as the babyface and Swerve as the heel. It's just good to see Keith on TV again after an extended absence. I'm not exactly sure where he was, but it's good to see him back. On Rampage, FTR and Sean Spears fought Gates of Agony and Brian Cage in a six-man match. Spears fully went back to the Perfect 10 gimmick, like the entrance, the dance, the sign, the whole thing. I just kind of shook my head at it. The faces were wearing all pink and black in Canada, of course, and they did triple stereo sharpshooters to get a huge pop, of course. One guy ran through the steps uh, with a shoulder tackle. Spears had a basement DDT on Cage outside, and then the C4 on another guy in the ring for the win. This was a really good like house show match to pop a home crowd. And for a TV match, I just didn't care at all. After the bell, Mike Bennett, Maria Kanellis, and Matt Taven, the kingdom, came out on stage. You could have heard a pin drop. This got no reaction. Maria got a slight cheer when she spoke. She said the titles belong to them and they don't get credit for putting ROH on their backs. The embassy then attacked the faces from behind and they took like a six on three beating until Samoa Joe and Wardlow eventually came out. All six heels left the ring despite a six on two advantage when Wardlow and Joe got in. So they could have fought him six on two, but nah, they're, they're too big and strong. So we have to leave. Now, Joe and Wardlow got a nice reaction because of course they did, but holy shit was this post-match rough. Like clearly Tony Khan is building up the ROH roster for a show, like I was just saying, but who the hell is asking for the Bennett's and Tavin or Taven, I'm sorry, in 2022? Like I need Joe and Wardlow separated and away from this absolute trash. It is such a waste of their talents. And even worse, it's a waste of their titles. These guys are two of your title holders. Wardlow has an AEW title and this is what you have him involved in. I just, I cannot wrap my head around it. On Dynamite, Joe and Wardlow cut a taped promo basically suggesting either Bennett or Taven should challenge for one of their titles and they could pick whichever one. Like at least them having championships is being acknowledged. But like, again, talk about a lack of interest. Who cares? Who thinks that Taven or Bennett is going to take one of the titles off one of these guys? It just, it's a total waste of time. On Dynamite, Renee interviewed FTR. They were asked when they would finally challenge for the AEW tag team titles as the number one contenders. They kind of filibustered until Swerve and Our Glory interrupted. 
Swerve started talking shit, but Keith stopped him, saying they deserve a title shot first. Dax Harwood suggested a number one contendership match next week, and Keith accepted. So even though these guys have been number one contenders for literally half of a year, now they're going to, I guess, win a number one contendership match to remain number one contenders and still not challenge for the titles. Like, okay, if that's what we're doing, I presume this is a way to hasten the split between Swerve and Keith, but you have babyface champions in the acclaimed. You decided to make them champions instead of putting the titles on FTR, having them beat Swerve in our glory. That was a hot shot booking decision. And now what are you doing with FTR? Nothing. They're involved in ROH shit and they've been number one contenders and yet they're still not getting their title opportunity. Very frustrating. On Dynamite, Renee interviewed the acclaimed. Speaking of, they announced the titles versus trademarks matches next week against the varsity athletes. Max Caster then had some really awful joke lines to end the segment. I'm just happy they're not dragging this out. I really don't dislike the storyline that a guy in Mark Sterling got their trademarks in order to force them to defend the titles. It's a very smart way to do a very quick tag team title feud without someone actually deserving it. This is the more, more of the type of stuff that AEW needs, like creativity to actually explain matches and why they're being held. On Dynamite, Christian Cage cut a promo saying he didn't brainwash Luchasaurus because Luchasaurus is actually smarter than Jungle Boy. Then he said they were done with Jungle Boy and were instead focused on winning gold. I think it would be nice to have Luchasaurus like go after Wardlow, right? With us getting a true Haas match for the TNT title. And you could always have Jungle Boy interfere in whatever title match, prevent Luchasaurus um, from losing clean. You know, he'd be some type of distraction. And then you have Jungle Boy Luchasaurus, I'm sure at full gear. I have to imagine that's the plan. On Rampage, Jose approached Dark Order and Ten immediately pointed out like some of the conflicts in the storyline that's been going on. He challenged Roosh one-on-one next week with the stipulation that he and Dark Order would be left alone for good when he wins. Now, if he does win and that ends the storyline, it's at least a smart way to wrap something up that has completely fallen off a cliff. What I can't understand is it seems like I think AEW has signed Bandito. I'm not positive about that, but we haven't seen him back. Andrade's not there. And now you have Roosh in a situation where he really shouldn't be losing to 10, but it just kind of seems like that's what's going to happen. So I am just curious to see what they do and how they eventually book that. On Rampage, Ethan Page fought Isaiah Cassidy. Page had a pump kick at the bell. Stokely Hathaway got in Cassidy's face at ringside. Matt Hardy moved him away. Cassidy then missed a swanton bomb. Page hit a cutter, an ego's edge, and he got the win in two minutes and 30 seconds. Page and Stokely celebrated, now owning Matt's contract in addition to Private Party. Page looked good, I thought, for a change, which was cool, but they just squashed Cassidy. Like, if it was a regular match, maybe I could have given it a pass, but there was a big stipulation on the line here, and they solved that with two minutes and 30 seconds of in-ring time. The result is somewhat interesting with Hardy now having to work with the firm, but it just feels repetitive. It was hardly entertaining. I gotta say, this was this was garbage. That is one big pile of shit. On Dynamite, Jay Lethal asked Darby Allen for a rematch during an interview segment that was not supposed to get physical. Darby said he'd beat him again in the rematch. Sanjay Dutt then said they know Darby's weakness and they called him a trash panda, which being called a raccoon, I guess, upset him. So Darby pushed both of them and then started fighting one on two. He got his head rammed into a garage door and then they closed the garage door on his midsection with Lethal, putting Darby in a figure four on the other side of the door. Talk about an odd segment. Like, didn't Darby and Lethal shake hands after the first match? And then they promised no physicality, but they got physical anyway. And they know some random weakness that Darby has, but they won't say what it was. Where was Sting the entire time? 
the brawl and the finish to it, I thought the finish and the brawl was strong, but the setup was really awkward. I just didn't understand it. On Rampage, Nyla Rose fought Anna JAS. Marina Shafir held the stolen TBS title at ringside. Nyla hit the beast bomb for the win in six minutes. Vicky Guerrero held up a 1-0 sign after the bell. Jade Cargill and the baddies came out. There was a wall of AEW staff between them and the ring for some reason. These guys and girls were like scrawny as hell. The baddies did nothing. Jade just walked up and started punching people in the face. And then Nyla just ran right by them with the title and they barely even noticed it. And then on Dynamite, Jade was mad at the baddies for not finding her TBS title. Then she threatened Tony Khan to hijack Rampage on Friday if he doesn't force Nyla to confront her and return the title. So the match between Nyla and uh, Anna Jay, it was fine. There's nothing wrong with it. The post-match was idiotic. Why is AEW staff protecting someone who stole a championship? Isn't the person, by the way, who steals the championship generally, I know not always, Sometimes a baby face does it tongue in cheek. But isn't that person normally a heel, especially when they're aligned with Vicky Guerrero and Marina Shafir? And is Jade not going to get in trouble now for straight up knocking out people in AEW staff shirts that are like one third her size? This is just continued awful booking. I don't have any choice in the matter. Zero point zero. And then what I said about what happened on Dynamite, the follow-up, I guess it was okay. We'll see what happens on Rampage. And lastly, on Rampage, Arya Davari, or Ari Davari, whatever his name is now, said there was $50,000 in the envelope that Hook tore up as his goal was to purchase the FTW title. But since Hook tore it up, he wanted to fight him for the title. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is awful. First of all, Hook is a moron for not opening that envelope and cashing $50,000 and then giving him the finger and keeping the title anyway. But why does Ari Davari want the FTW title? What is the motivation for him to have that? He's not the million dollar man and it's not the WWE championship or the AEW championship. It's like, it's not even a title that's recognized by the company. So why and how and and why? Why is this on my television? I don't get it. It's bad. Um, look, Rampage as a whole this week, there were some bigger names on it, which in theory should make the show better, but it was very clearly like, just an afterthought from a booking standpoint, just to continue a couple storylines without actually having developments happen, like kicking the can down the road. That's what it was. Rampage this week felt like main roster, quote unquote, kicking the can down the road. What it should be, again, is it should be utilized for storylines that there's not enough time for them on Dynamite in a given week. So for example, if you have multiple things going on and Darby Allen, Jay Lethal, you're like, you know what? They've already fought on Dynamite, so we know it's a main storyline that AEW cares about, but the show's going long. We want to give more match time to this, or we want to do another vignette or whatever. Let's put their segment on Rampage. Let's take the tag team title storyline that isn't really developing that much on Dynamite, and let's just have that on Rampage every week. A great example of the development aspect of it, though, what I'm talking about, is what they did with Chris Jericho and Dalton Castle where they they set it up on Rampage and then they paid it off on Dynamite rather than waiting to the next Dynamite to do it again. They need more of that. And if AEW can do that, then I think Rampage will become a little bit more watchable. But right now, again, even though there were a couple decent things that happened on Rampage for the second week in a row, when I watched it, I was just like, man, this still feels like a waste of time. And you know what? Also, on top of everything else, the Rampage theme has to be the worst show theme in wrestling. 
it's Rampage, baby. This is Rampage, baby. And just repeating that seven times. Like I hear that and I'm already in a bad mood before the show starts. So yes, this is my advice. Uh, Change the format of the show, change the theme. And yeah, maybe it'll be better and maybe I'll be happier to watch it. But right now I can't really get into Rampage. Dynamite though, very good show for the second week in a row. And one more time, uh, just, just because. Best wishes to Hangman. Hope for a speedy recovery. So with that, let's move over to NXT. We have plenty to talk about. A couple storylines that are TV only. They're staying on the show itself. And then we have our entire NXT Halloween Havoc Ultimate Preview, which we will get to momentarily. Let's start with everything that happened on the show that did not directly impact Halloween Havoc. So we had Stax, who had a match against an opponent to be determined by Tony D'Angelo. So D'Angelo comes out with Stax. He reminded him that this match was about earning respect and proving himself. And then he teased the announcement after the commercial break, which was very funny. The crowd booed. It was good. And that announcement ended up getting an insane pop, probably one of the biggest we've heard for an NXT show in the Performance Center when Shinsuke Nakamura's music hit. He got Welcome Back, Nakamura, and Welcome Home Chance before fans sang his theme. Shinsuke hit a running kick, sliding German suplex, and a Kinshasa. That sent Stax through the ropes. Stax was defiant, though, once he got back in the ring, begging for more. Nakamura hit a second Kinshasa and got the win in five minutes and 30 seconds. After the bell, D'Angelo praised Stax for showing guts that he didn't even know he had. Credit where it's due, right? Stax really held his own with a tremendous wrestler in this spot. Nakamura dominated the match as he should, yet Stax still benefited from being in the ring with him. There's not really much to analyze here, but given Shinsuke hasn't been involved in like a major TV storyline on SmackDown in a while, it was great to see him here. PW Insider uh, reported that Nakamura is not done with NXT. He's probably going to make a couple more spot appearances. And I guess that's okay as long as he's not being used on the main roster, but they really need to get him involved in a storyline on SmackDown, or if not, move him over to Raw. They got to start doing something with him again soon. He's way too talented. And with Triple H having the book, like I know Nakamura is going to get used right if he's used. I know they can't use everyone at once. There's a lot of storylines going on across both shows already. And yes, we talk all the time about WWE cycling in talent. We've wanted them to do that for for years now, right? When the roster is large. There's certain periods of time where someone can be off TV for two months and not have a storyline. But then when they come back, they need to hit the ground running and have a really good storyline. That's what I need from Nakamura. I'm not upset that he hasn't been on TV since August, but it's almost November. By the time we get to November, it would sure as hell be nice to have Nakamura back on TV with a storyline he can sink his teeth into. Uh, Cameron Grimes and the Good Brothers fought the schism. The faces commiserated over the schism backstage. Grimes took out some cash to get them hyped up, and they did the to the moon and too sweet gestures together. Joe Gacy yelled at Grimes, calling him a hypocrite for running into the arms of the OC after rejecting the schism. The heels hit a triple powerbomb on Grimes. Luke Gallows had a really strong hot tag, surprisingly. The dyad went for Ticket to Mayhem on Carl Anderson, but Grimes ran in to catch one of them with the cave-in. Anderson hit a spinebuster, and the Good Brothers combined for Magic Killer to get the win in 12 minutes. After the bell, they checked Grimes' tights for the cash. I thought that was a pretty funny moment. This definitely over-delivered. Strong action throughout the match. The right winners. Having the Good Brothers go over dyad that kept a potential Grimes-Gacy match fresh for the future. Even though I never wanted this feud, since it's happening, you have to save that match for last. So the comedy part with Gallows and Anderson being paid was probably the best part of the entire thing, but they made chicken salad out of chicken shit in terms of the schism. And it was entertaining. It was probably the best thing that they've been involved in thus far, in large part because of the Good Brothers. So credit to them where it's due. Uh, There were two separate tag team championship contract signings. The women briefly talked shit to one another ahead of their match next week. 
It was nothing notable other than Nikita Lyons doing a terrible job reading her lines. Uh, Pretty Deadly was then condescending to Malik Blade and Idris Sanofe. They promised to shock the world, the challengers. I like the booking of putting both titles on the line across the same show. That's pretty solid. The backstage segments, though, they didn't really do much to get me excited. They tried to replicate uh, when they had all those other title matches, the... um, all, everything they did for Worlds Collide, basically, they tried to replicate that. And it just, it didn't hit the same way because the matches weren't as important. It was totally different. Uh, Veer backstage said what he told Sangha was only for Sangha and no one else. Sangha walked up after that saying he's finally ready to listen to him. And they walked away. So we're getting a slow build here. I like how these guys are looking like a million bucks in finely tailored suits. It's just what I used to talk about all the time for Veer when he came out with that stupid gimmick on the main roster. This is what he should be doing. This is what they should be doing. And I am excited, presumably, to see them as a tag team once again. Uh, Thea Hale got worked up in class, upset that she lost to Kiana James. Bodie Hayward suggested Andre Chase could just get her another rematch, and Chase nodded. Thea went wild with excitement. Chase calmed her down and went over the history of Halloween Havoc with a presentation. He gave the class homework to watch Halloween Havoc when suddenly Chucky like the doll from the USA Network show and obviously the movies in the past, interrupted on their screen. Bodie lost his mind. Chucky cursed him out, saying that's a teachable moment. Then Thea cursed. It was just really funny stuff. Chase U continues to over-deliver every single time it's on the screen. And lastly, before we get to the ultimate preview, Briggs and Jensen decided to play a drinking game during the KO show. And we'll talk about that later. There was a lot of randomness going down. Javier Bernal was playing poker. Sol Rucka like walked through people doing a handstand. Kiana's assistant handed papers to Fallon Henley. They didn't you know, follow up on that. I'm sure we'll get more next week. The schism recruit in the red hoodie and the yellow mask walked by. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but it was all just kind of like ridiculous packed into a single segment. It didn't seem like it needed to happen. So it was just weird that it did. So now let's get to our NXT Halloween Havoc Ultimate Preview. I'm going to break down every match, the storylines we got on the Go Home Show and offer a prediction, of course, for the match along with what may happen going forward. First, before we get to the matches, Shotzi returned to NXT in her original smaller tank, uh, introduced as the host for Halloween Havoc. She got welcome home chants and Shotzi chants as well, while saying she's the one superstar who screams Halloween, which is certainly true. She promised this Halloween Havoc would be even more balls to the wall than the one she hosted two years ago. Zion Quinn interrupted to say that she was the perfect host, but he wanted to be the co-host. Then Quincy Elliott came out saying he would love to see Zion in a Halloween costume, but she needs a scream queen and super diva like him. Shotzi decided the winner of their singles match could be her co-host. And then she smacked Quincy on the ass a few times just for fun. So we got Elliot against Quinn. Zion tried to lift Quincy for a Samoan drop, but collapsed face first. I thought it was a pretty good spot, like collapsing underneath the weight of the guy. You know, it just looked really cool. Uh, Zion then went to grab a chair when Hank Walker stopped him. Coming back inside, Quinn got caught by Elliot on a running splash. Quincy then did a bonsai drop for the win and danced with Shotzi after the bell. This was all fine. Like Shotzi, she was a must as host and Quincy being alongside her, it should be fun enough. Uh, Julius Creed and Damon Kemp, they're going to fight in an ambulance match. The stipulation is if Creed wins, Brutus gets to fight Kemp. And if Kemp wins, Brutus has to leave NXT. So in a split screen interview, Julius said the pressure was on, but Kemp was a clown. Kemp said Julius has been super successful, but he's also an arrogant, jealous loser. Julius called him a clout chaser, unwilling to do the work. Kemp called him a robot. Julius basically said, I'm not a robot, I'm a machine. Then Julius came back saying he won more matches in a month in college than Kemp won in his entire career, and that Kemp peaked in high school and isn't even the best athlete in his family, referring to Gable Stevenson. This is Gable's brother, uh, Damon Kemp. Now, this was an awesome segment. Like, talk about exceeding expectations. 
The back and forth was great. They took real shots at each other. It really amped up the intensity ahead of a match that was already decently intense in storyline. The prediction here is very tough. You know, it seems odd that they would do a Brutus needs to leave NXT stipulation unless there was a specific reason for it. For example, he's injured or he's decided to straight up quit the business and Julius is going to work on his own. And I can't know that. Like, I don't know what the motivation is for the stipulation if there is a real life motivation, I guess I should say, as part of the stipulation. So I need to operate as if this entire thing is kayfabe that Brutus is going to continue wrestling. Now, they theoretically could have Julius Creed lose to Kemp and then call up the Creed brothers to the main roster. It just doesn't really feel like they are ready for the main roster. I'd love to see them get another year of seasoning in NXT. They had a nice title run, but it wasn't a great title run. They could definitely win the championships again and go on a strong run. And then you kind of think about the ambulance match stipulation. And I could certainly see, given it's basically no disqualification, anything goes, I could pretty much see other people getting involved here. Now, whether that's Brutus Creed or maybe Kemp comes up with a group of people to have his back, I don't really have the answer to that. But one trope that I think could work is obviously Roderick Strong. We've only seen him one time uh, since Kemp's attack on him. And he was still in the hospital, right? He was still uh, in, I think, in the bed. He had a neck, no, I think he was sitting in a wheelchair. He had a neck brace on and, and he was acting very sappy, uh, like a soap opera type of deal. I could definitely see a scenario where one of them is about to win the match. They open up the ambulance doors for the first time and Roderick Strong's right in there. He attacks the person and then helps them put the other person um, in the ambulance to get the win. Now, the question is, is it gonna be a swerve where Strong is in there to help Kemp and turn on the Creed brothers and it was all a ruse the entire time? Or is it Strong coming out to get Julius's back and really represent the diamond mine and screw over Kemp? So whether the Strong appearance happens or doesn't, I'm ultimately gonna go with Julius Creed winning this match. I just do not see why in Julius Creed's first significant singles match, this guy who legitimately is a future main eventer on the main roster. I'm not saying he'll necessarily be a champion, but he could definitely be a main eventer, IC champion, US champion with his brother, tag team championships. These are no brainers in terms of a ceiling for this guy. I don't see how in his first match ever you have him lose to Damon Kemp, even if it's an ambulance match and he doesn't get pinned one, two, three. So yes, my pick is Julius Creed. Apollo Crews is going to fight Grayson Waller in a spin the wheel, make the deal match. This transpired because Waller was backstage talking shit about Crews ahead of their regular match when suddenly Chucky appeared on the screen to inform him of the stipulation that scared Waller who ran off. I would bet dollars to donuts this ends up being a blindfold match. They're doing the eye stuff. It it just makes sense that that's what it's going to be. And if it is indeed a blindfold match, or honestly, even if it's not, uh, Apollo Crews is going to win. I just don't see how you book Waller to be Crews it wouldn't really make any sense, especially when Waller won the first match between them. It makes sense for Cruz to get his win back, especially if this guy is staying in NXT, which it seems like he is. But beyond anything else, they really need to fix Apollo Cruz' gimmick because this thing is just wildly terrible. Um, so hopefully this ends it. They get away from the eye stuff and move forward with Apollo Cruz and do something different. Because again, what they're doing right now is just not working. Uh, we're going to have Roxanne Perez against Cora Jade in a weapons wild match. This was spin the wheel, make the deal, 
Waller spinned it a few weeks ago and it landed on Weapons Wild. But leading into this, we had a pick your poison uh, series of matches with Roxanne getting to choose the opponent for Cora Jade and Cora Jade getting to choose the opponent for Roxanne Perez from the main roster. Both of them went to the main roster to do that. Now, the opponent that Cora Jade chose and convinced to fight was Rhea Ripley. So we got Ripley against Roxanne. The entire Judgment Day opened the show with their full entrance. They got chance of welcome back, Judgment Day, and Rhea's gonna kill you. Roxy rotated herself on Rhea's shoulders for a Huracarana. Ripley caught another Huracarana attempt outside and put Perez into the ring apron with a face slam. Ripley flew into the ring post as Perez dodged an attack in the corner and then hit a tope suicida outside. Roxanne then hit a huge Huracarana out of the corner. Perez slid out of Riptide, but Ripley bounced her off her back trying Pop Rocks. Dominic Mysterio distracted momentarily. That allowed Ripley to hit Riptide for the win and get her pinfall via her signature um, pose, I guess is the best way to put it. This went 13 minutes to open NXT. The match booking was great in that Ripley never at any point during the match gave up her size advantage. It was a factor in almost every single sequence with Ripley always winning because of her size, yet Roxy using her diminutive size and speed to get plenty of offense. No joke, AEW and NXT, this was my second favorite match of the entire night. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. And even though we already knew this, this match was definitive proof that Roxanne Perez has it. Remember, she is 20 years old. This is a future women's champion and a potential future like top two or three woman on the main roster by the time she gets up there and gets into the main event. Uh, so the other match, the Pick Your Poison match, was Raquel Rodriguez against Cora Jade. Just three minutes into the match, Rodriguez caught Jade trying to use her weapon, so she stole it from her and beat her with it. That led to a disqualification. Jade laughed because that's what she wanted. She wanted to get the win via disqualification. But Roxy ran down. She got some big shots on her. Uh, and though Cora rolled out to avoid the kendo stick shot, Raquel then put Roxy on her shoulders to celebrate as the entire thing ended. Now, it was disappointing to see Roxy and Rhea go 13 minutes in a banger to open the show, only for this to just be some bullshit. Now, like, it makes sense given Jade's a heel and she would want to get out of this match, but they could have at least gone six or seven minutes first. Like, in the end, it doesn't really matter that much. I just wanted to see what Jade could do against Rodriguez, same as Perez against Ripley earlier in the show. In terms of predicting this match by having the weapons that obviously creates a way where the heel can win and the babyface gets excused by it. But Cora Jade kind of already beat her and she's had the upper hand on Perez this entire time. Roxanne is the future of the division, not just in NXT, but in the company as a whole. And for her to get her first really big premium live event match again and not win, to me, wouldn't really make a lot of sense. So, you know, this is a show where like, we should be looking for opportunities for heels to win, but... I just can't really find them. Maybe Grayson Waller over Apollo Crews, you know, could be one of those heel over babyface victories. But coming into this match, or I should say coming out of this match, the money is with Roxanne Perez. That's not to say Cora Jade can't do a good job if she wins, but Roxy's the one who could really get pushed. So I am going to go ahead and pick Roxanne Perez to win this. I just wouldn't be surprised if it ultimately is Cora Jade. Uh, we have the vacant North American Championship on the line in a five-way ladder match. It's going to be Carmelo Hayes, Wesley, Oro Mensa, uh, Von Wagner and Nathan Frazier. Frazier and Axiom were backstage recounting their series as friends. Axiom said he was going to root for Frazier in the big match. Wagner and Mr. Stone put them down saying their matches will mean nothing when he wins the title. Frazier and Wagner then got into a, li a little bit and then the segment ended. 
We also had a tag team match on the show. Mello and Trick Williams against Wesley and Mensa. The faces were getting along in the locker room when the heels attacked. All four men fought their way out to ringside. Mensa hit a great missile dropkick. Trick threw Wes off the ropes. Mensa jumped off the steps to take him out. Mello caught Wes with a code breaker and then hit the flying leg drop for the win. The heels also attacked after the bell, but the faces got up two-on-one until Mello hit a tope on Hero outside, only to get leveled with a Wagner boot. Wagner then hit a huge crossbody from Frazier off the top rope to end the segment. Uh, this was a nice match, not spectacular. Everyone got a spotlight. Mello looked great. He was the MVP clearly and the winner. Definitely the right call to have him go over, given, this gets into the match prediction, there should be no way he walks out of Halloween Havoc with the championship. He has already won the North American title twice. He dominated the division. Carmelo Hayes needs to get either moved to the main roster, which I don't think he should yet. I'm fine with him in NXT. But he should at least be getting moved up to the main event division on NXT. And he really should be the one to take the title off Braun Breaker. So you can't have him as the North American champion again. In terms of those in this match, who you theoretically could make champion, to me, there's really only two names, Wesley and Nathan Frazier. Could Wagner have the title and do a decent job with Stone as his mouthpiece? Maybe, but he'd probably be the worst North American champion since Leon Ruff. And, you know, that title does have a significant level of importance in this company. Wesley is the one who in storyline, it makes a lot of sense to win the title given all the adversity he had to come back from losing his partner, losing a couple matches at the beginning, figuring out how to win. Then it looked like he was going to get a title shot. Obviously, uh, Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams ruined that from him. Solo Sokoa won the title, then he had to vacate it. And then on the go-home show, you have Melo beating Wesley with the leg drop, you know, his finisher in the to end the match. So yeah, really, it should be Wesley coming out of here, winning the title. And that is going to be my prediction. It sets up for an immediate title challenge for Carmelo Hayes that he will deserve. And then Wesley can beat Carmelo Hayes and really solidify himself as the North American champion. He is 100%, in my opinion, the right person to win it. Oro Mensa, he's too new over there. Nathan Frazier, he's not, hasn't been there consistently enough. There was a period of time where he went away and then he came back. He had a great series of matches with Axiom. He's going to be a huge part of this match being extremely good. This very well could be the match of the night. In fact, it's probably the front runner to be the match of the night. But I, I just don't think he's ready for the title. And Wagner, man, he just ain't it. Like he's the opposite of it. He's not it. I mean, I wish I had a better word for it. Maybe I'll come up with it and get a sound drop. But him putting the championship on him, it would just be a big mistake. Even if they had Wesley win it in like two to four weeks, putting it on Wagner at all would be a mistake. So I do have Wesley winning the North American championship coming out of this match. It also means I have all baby faces winning some so far. So let's go ahead and keep going. Uh, the women's championship is going to be on the line. Mandy Rose against Alba Fire. Fire fought Sonya Deville on NXT. Toxic Attraction tried distracting early. Fire moved Gigi Dolan in the way of Deville's big boot. Then she rolled up Sonya for the win in two minutes. Toxic immediately attacked after the bell. They choked Alba out with her bat. Their music hit and Mandy Rose walked out making her return in a, uh, the best way I can describe it is just a, crazy uh, see-through bodysuit. She said she would fight fire with fire and become more ruthless. Alba fought out of the triple team and avoided a belt shot from Mandy, threatening her with the bat and holding the title as the segment ended. Mandy was away for a deeply personal reason, so it was great to see her back. This just was really not a good segment. The match was unnecessarily short. 
The finish was convoluted. There was really no purpose in Sonya being there. And even Mandy's promo was just weak. Like I thought the go home would be a lot stronger when Mandy showed up. And instead it was really ho-hum. And that may even be being nice about the entire thing. Now, in terms of making a prediction for this match, like I'm in a weird spot, right? Because I've predicted all babyface wins and Alba fires a babyface. And I've been saying for probably, I don't know, three months now, maybe even longer, that she needed to be the one to beat Mandy Rose for the women's championship and end her reign. There's also a great opportunity to call up Mandy Rose and Toxic Attraction to the main roster now that none of them have championships. So I have to go with that. I do not see how you can have Alba fire Mandy Rose, I believe a second time, and not have Alba fire the best women's wrestler in the brand right now. Maiko Satomura is not in the United States. No idea where Saray is. Alba fire is better than Saray anyway. But there's no way you can have this top tier talent remain on this roster and not win the championship when she was like, I don't know if she was the longest reigning NXT UK women's champion, but I kind of think she was. She was the forever champion gimmick. She beat Maiko Satomura for the title. I'm sorry, correction. She beat Tony Storm for the title and only lost the championship because she fought Maiko Satomura. But she had like a 650-day reign or something like that as NXT UK Women's Champion. She was incredible. And that's the title she deserves on NXT in the United States as well. So ultimately, I do have Alba Fire coming out of here with the title. It would be a huge disappointment if Mandy Rose remains champion after all this time when they have an heir apparent ready for her and definitely toxic attraction. You can say what you will about their ability, but from a gimmick standpoint, character work standpoint, they're ready for the main roster. Call them up. Let Alba light a fire, pun intended, in the NXT women's division and get this thing rolling the right way, which it really has not been for a pretty good period of time with Mandy Rose as champion. And lastly, we have the NXT championship in a triple threat match, Braun Breaker against JD McDonough and Isla Dragunov. Backstage, Breaker didn't apologize for how last week's show finished. He said he'd rather go through his challengers than around them. Braun said that he was excited for the KO show later because all three guys have something to say. And whenever there is a KO show, something always ends up going down. So we get to the main event of NXT. We do have the KO show. Fans chanted, welcome home and KO. Owens was wearing a Dusty Road shirt, which was a really nice touch. He said Shawn Michaels invited him and he'll never tell him no. Fans chanted HPK. KO said, you're welcome. Owens said he doubted he could keep the peace between these guys without one of them wreaking havoc. He called JD a creep. McDonough came back saying he's not the one who got physically involved last week. It was the other guys insinuating that he outsmarted them, which by the way, he did in kayfabe. Dragunov said he was aiming for McDonough, but hitting Breaker was not a mistake. He was glad he did it because he realized Braun is human and can be beaten. Breaker said his spear kept Dragunov down when others could not. And while it sucked that Dragunov had to relinquish the NXT UK title, him getting back into the world of championship gold would not come at Braun's expense. KO pointed to the faces uh, and they said, hey, look, guys, you're letting the heel work, you guys. Get you all upset. You need to smarten up because nobody wants McDonough with the title, including his own mom. JD said he doesn't need anyone's approval. All he wants is the title and to torture Isla for running him out of NXT UK. And he said the best way he can do that is by winning the championship so Dragunov can't have it. Dragunov called McDonough a leech, saying he'll always be a contender but never a champion. Then he got into it with Breaker and KO smartly exited the ring before chaos erupted. McDonough sat in the corner watching and laughing as Breaker speared a security guard. Dragunov took him out with a torpedo Moscow. McDonough tried to catch Dragunov with the Devlin slide, but Dragunov hit another torpedo Moscow. Suddenly, Austin Theory's music hit 
And he held up the Money in the Bank briefcase as the show ended with Dragunov holding the NXT title. This was a really nice surprise, both in terms of the execution of the overall segment and Theory showing up at the end. Owens was a great like master of ceremonies here. He really kept the segment moving with a bunch of guys who are far less experienced doing something this complicated. And yes, a segment like this is super complicated. All three guys got their points across. KO injected some comedy into it and it ended with the Theory surprise. I particularly appreciated how KO took shots at McDonough for being creepy with an odd gimmick given how long that we've talked about that entire thing. Now, it is firmly established, in kayfabe at least, that Money in the Bank extends to NXT. Will they pull that trigger? I doubt it. Theory is already established on the main roster. It made sense to bring him back to NXT during the pandemic after that really short stint he had on Raw. But to send him back a second time, even if it was as champion, I think it would just be frustrating, especially because the briefcase would then be completely out of the picture. I'd almost rather Theory fail on a main roster cash-in and then do a Dolph Ziggler stint in NXT as a champion after winning the title from like a normal challenge than have him waste a title contract that he won at a major WWE premium live event on the NXT title. Now, I know you're gonna say, well, wait a minute, Silver King. That's what Charlotte Flair did. She cashed in on the NXT championship because she won the Royal Rumble and she wanted to fight Rhea Ripley at WrestleMania. That's true. But Charlotte Flair was in a specific situation where she had never won the NXT title, and she wanted to, and WWE, I'm sorry, I should say, wanted to try to elevate the NXT brand by doing that with Rhea Ripley, knowing that they could put on a really good match. This is not that situation. This is a premium live event in the Performance Center, not a featured match or a situation like that. And again, I do think that we saw this succeed with Dolph Ziggler when he came down and held the championship. But Dolph Ziggler is a veteran. This is a guy who's already accomplished so much on the main roster that to have him come back down and quote unquote slum it in NXT as champion, it helped enhance basically Braun Breaker. If you're putting the title on Austin Theory, who are you enhancing? Anyone who fights him, I'm not necessarily saying that they would be better than him, but like, let's say you give the title to Austin Theory as a heel and then you turn Carmelo Hayes' face and then he beats Theory. That's nice, but Theory's barely removed from NXT And he's never won anything in WWE other than Money in the Bank. And I guess he had that short United States Championship reign, but it's not even memorable that he had that title is how short it was. So you look at this and you're kind of like, well, who would really benefit from Theory winning the championship? And the only person maybe would be Theory, except he'd be off of the main roster television show unless they decided to have him on Raw every week as the NXT champion and then also have him on NXT. So if they're going to do that, Maybe there's a reason where they can make it work. It just feels like the wrong way to do it. I'd Again, I'd rather have him actually try to cash in, whether it's on Roman Reigns, whether it's on whoever beats Roman Reigns for the title, presumably at WrestleMania. I'd rather him try to cash in on that person and fail and then go to NXT Challenge for the title because he's upset about that. He had his opportunity. He missed it. He wins the NXT title, spends a couple months down there, and then he comes back up. Then using the Money in the Bank briefcase, and by the way, you have two all year, right? You have one for the men, one for the women. They use the women's one right away, as they always do. Now you have the men's one left and you have the opportunity to have fun with it and tell storylines and have this person threaten to cash it in. And they've done that a couple times. Don't forget, it worked at um, SummerSlam when he threatened to cash it in with what they did with Brock Lesnar and the bloodline taking him out. It worked at Clash at the Castle, where Tyson Fury punched him in the face and thwarted his opportunity. Those were good moments for him. So 
for him to kind of just now go to NXT and cash it in because he tried to do it two times and it didn't work because Brock Lesnar and Tyson Fury knocked him out. To me, that would just be kind of taking a step down. And I don't really think that Theory should be doing that. Would it be the worst thing in the world? No. Again, I'm just talking about how I would book the damn territory. I wouldn't do it that way. Now, in terms of predicting the match, right? Uh, Assuming no cash-in by Austin Theory, they've been leaning pretty heavily on the fact that the last time Braun Breaker was in a triple threat match, he lost his title. And because they've mentioned that so many times, I just don't think they're going to do it a second time. I would love for Dragunov to be champion. I don't see them making him champion of NXT in the United States. McDonough, I don't want to win. It's not that I don't like him as a wrestler. I actually think he's super talented. This gimmick is horrendous. And this gimmick as champion is an absolute loser. So really, there's only two options coming out of this match. One is for Theory to cash in, which would be a surprise. It would be a moment. And perhaps they would do it in a way that I would like it. Or for Breaker to retain the title and finally move on from McDonough. And that's what I ultimately have happening. So yes, on a six-match card, as of right now, I have baby faces winning all six matches. I do not think that is what's ultimately going to happen. It'll probably end up being four baby faces and two heels, something like that. Um, But when it comes to my predictions and the way that I think these storylines are going, that's just the way I'm leaning. And it's tough to kind of uh, go away from that. I guess the positive is that uh, the men's tag team champions are heels, so all the champions wouldn't be heels, but it would be a very heavy uh, face alignment for the titles with only one heel if everything transpires the way I predicted. Again, that's why I kind of think it won't, uh, but we'll find out. We'll find out during Halloween Havoc on Saturday. Uh, we'll see if the Silver King's right, but more importantly, we'll see if the booking's good because that is more important than, of course, any picks or predictions I make being correct. Uh, last but not least, before we get out of here, I need to give a pre-show expectation grade for NXT Halloween Havoc. You know, the main event, um, even though two of the competitors, I, I mean, I love Dragunov, but I don't really think this makes like a ton of sense really to be a match where Breaker loses the title. So I'm not excited for it, even though I think the work rate is going to be good. Um, you know, I think that match will be solid, the, the main event. The women's match, you know, it'll be as good, I guess, as Alba can carry Mandy Rose. The ladder match should be extremely good. Roxanne Perez and Cora Jade, I have high expectations for. Same with Apollo Crews and Grayson Waller and Julius Creed against Damon Kemp. So I think this has every opportunity to wind up in the A range by the time we're done with Halloween Havoc. But I'm not gonna give it that expectation grade because it's still a lot of young talent without much experience. And to expect an A show out of that is very difficult. So I am actually gonna go with a B plus, as high as I can go without having an expectation grade in the A range. I do think this is gonna be a fantastic premium live event. And I'm super excited not only to watch it on Saturday, but as soon as it's over, jump on here and give you an NXT Halloween Havoc instant analysis episode. So be sure not to miss that because we will have instant analysis as soon as this goes off the air Saturday night. I mentioned earlier, We will also have an NXT Halloween Havoc pre-show that will air on Twitter Spaces live on Saturday before this show begins. We'll either do it at 7 p.m. Eastern or 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Not exactly sure yet. Uh, It'll be one of those two times we will set, uh, or send out, I should say, a reminder tweet, and you'll be able to uh, lock in so you know when the show begins, but you'll also be able to see the time if you want to join us just before it starts. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at GettingOvercast 
for the pre-show live on Twitter spaces. And so you can get the instant analysis podcast as soon as it drops. Uh, of course, what's coming up here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we always cover that on this show as we get out of here. After the NXT Halloween Havoc instant analysis on Saturday, we will be back Tuesday for our next WWE episode, talking everything that goes down this week across SmackDown and Raw. And then next Thursday, not same bat time, same bat channel, but Thursday in our normal slot, we will have your next NXT and AEW episode. So thank you all for listening to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Once again, on the way out, allow me to remind you that this show... So leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and leave those five-star ratings on Spotify. On Apple, let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, and tell them why they should subscribe with those reviews, and we will read them live right here on the podcast. Thank you all for listening. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.